Welcome to Extraordinary, my retelling of the story of my almost rape and violent stabbing in 2018 from my perspective, as well as from the perspectives of some of my closest friends and family. My hope is that this story and the stories of the extraordinary people who helped me along the way will inspire a better understanding of the effects of extreme violence, PTSD, and recovery on individuals and the people supporting them. Thank you so much for listening. And you can follow along on our Instagram account, extraordinary.podcast, to see the photos, videos, and helpful resources that correspond to the content of every episode. And please, 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 if you are a survivor or someone suffering from the effects of sexual assault, violence, or PTSD, take care while listening. Hi, welcome back. Um, So in this episode, I want to take you through uh, the steps to get to the trial and the legal process and the perspective, again, of the police and the prosecutor. And at the beginning, I want to take you on just a little detour um, to give you a little bit more insight into my mom and my family and my life as a kid um, and where I grew up. I'm sure that you've heard me talk about and me and my mom talk about um, that we're from the Midwest. Uh, I was born in a town called La Crosse, Wisconsin in the 80s. It's a river town. Uh, The Mississippi River runs through the town, um, like my mom and I talked about. And the main street is lined with old stone buildings and small local shops. Um, It's a pretty blue-collar town. Uh, Most of the men I grew up around worked in home or automotive repair. Uh, Most of the women I grew up around were teachers or healthcare workers. Um, everyone waves to each other on the street. Um, everybody gives you a big pat on the back. And most everyone lives for football games and family time. My mom got married to my dad when she was 19 and had my older brother when she was 20 or 21. Um, she had grown up on a farm in a small town outside of La Crosse, Wisconsin, with nine sisters. Um, she woke up in the morning and milked the cows and fed the chickens and worked in the garden and um, ate what they grew. And uh, I think growing up, she really wanted something else for her family. Um, so she went to school, went to college, um, and became a pharmacist. And when I was little, we, she was working, she had two jobs, I think one was 40 minutes away. Um, and the other was at a local pharmacy in town and she worked as hard as she could to give us a different life. Sing this song when I'm gone. 
belong before another day. We're gonna have a good time. No one's gonna take that time away. We can say as So my mom having nine sisters meant that we grew up around a bunch of aunts, a bunch of cousins. Um, every holiday was spent with a mess of kids running around in the yard. Uh, my aunt used to live down the block and babysat me and my brothers when my mom worked. Um, and we just always had family around for, for all of our holidays and big events. So that last clip is me and my mom in the bathtub. Um, she said I was almost two and we're going through my cousin's names and her sister's names and she's talking to me about um, my Aunt Jean who used to babysit me and my brothers while she was at work. And my dad also came from a big family. He was kind of a creative, dreamy type. He always was drawing and painting and had a business with his brother, um, his younger brother. They had a house painting business. And family was a big part of our world. Family at that time growing up was everything. parents being together that much before they got divorced when I was seven um but afterward I 
you know, we had lived in a, a small house on the north side of La Crosse, um, which was a pretty residential neighborhood with a bunch of neighbors. Um, and after the divorce, we moved with my mom to a big house out in the country, um, up on a hill in the woods. Um, and my dad got an apartment, um, of his own, a, I think a one or two bedroom apartment. And we started to split time between the two and we mostly lived at my mom's house in the country and we would ride bikes and catch snakes and go down to the creek and play ghosts in the graveyard at night with the neighbor kids and pick blackberries off of bushes as we walked down the street. It was a very um, idyllic kind of storybook childhood that way. And then we started, you know, seeing my dad for scheduled meetings on Wednesday mornings before school or every other weekend or um, just kind of scattered days here and there that started to feel kind of disruptive, I think, to all of our lives. And um, just this, not to see my dad, but the scheduling of it just felt strange and I think was uncomfortable for us, me and my brothers. And, um, and I think it started to get harder and harder for us, um, to be on board with, with what was happening. Both of my parents remarried, uh, my dad when I was 13 and my mom when I was 18. Um, and we built families and lives with our respective step parents and traditions and homes um and we loved we loved both of them uh, my stepdad and my stepmom very much and you know I think as teenagers we struggled uh, my brothers and I my brothers are pretty shy and pretty quiet um and I was the middle child and I always I think felt like I had to be the mouthpiece for us to speak up when I thought things weren't fair or when I thought something was a bad plan. Um, and I just was kind of the feistier kid. Um, so I got in trouble the most and talked back the most. Um, and felt like, I guess it was my job to, to fight for the three of us, um, when things didn't feel like we were being heard. I'll take a shower after school. Before I do anything else. Before I do anything else. Signed. Signed, Lee. Lee Cotton. Count. No crossing, no? No crossing fingers? No crossing fingers. And in general, I was a pretty precocious kid. And I guess by precocious, I mean a little bit um, snotty and a little bit naughty, um, and sweet, but, uh, I think, I don't know, I listened to recordings of myself when I was little and I'm such a little, like, know-it-all, <laughs> um, but I remember I always sang all the time and danced all the time and wanted to have shows all the time and just I think 
wanted individual attention really badly. Um, and I would act out and scream and have tantrums sometimes. Um, and in school, I, I kind of teeter tottered between being a loner and being a little bit different. I used to wear costumes to school sometimes, <laughs> um, not on costume days. Um, and by sometimes I mean a lot. Um, I teeter tottered between being a little bit of a loner and then being part of the in group. It felt like looking back year to year, it was, it changed, um, every year or so whether or not I was acceptable, um, to the popular group. And, um, I always loved to read and always read books on my own. I loved stories about adventure or about a kid having to survive on their own. Those were my favorite stories like, um, Island of the Blue Dolphins or My Side of the Mountain, um, The Wizard of Oz, the whole series, The Wizard of Oz. I loved those books. Um, but when I was in fifth grade, I think I, I took some tests. I remember taking some tests and I was nine or 10 and tested out of some, most of the material. And I think I took the ACTs maybe and, and tested at a, a college level in some subjects. I don't remember exactly what it was. So I think the second half of fifth grade, I, I would go to classes with my classmates in the morning, and then in the afternoon, I would just go into the library by myself and read, and I always, I think, wanted to imagine in these stories a world that I couldn't see around me, that I knew was out there, but I could only find in books because I, I knew that I didn't want a life that I could see presented to me in my hometown. And that's not to say that those lives aren't amazing lives and lives that people are really happy with. But I knew even when I was really little that that wasn't what I wanted. Um, so I lost myself in these books and dreamed all the time about what my life would be like and it would be full of adventure and it would be discovering new places and it would be exciting and like a dream. So when I finished art school in Chicago, um, I decided I wanted to move out to Los Angeles and I worked as a waitress um, and saved up cash in a wooden box for a year and a half and was able to save $1,500. And my mom, as I was about to drive out of town, I packed up my dog into and all my anything I could get into this little Chevy Prism that I had. And I went to two mechanics that both told me there was no way this car was going to make it out to California, um, assured me that there was no way that this car was going to make it to California. 
Um, but as I was leaving, my mom matched my $1,500 and gave me another 1500 cash. Um, so I, I packed up my car and my boyfriend who I'd been dating for two months at the time also jumped in the car and brought his dog and packed whatever he could. And we took off and we, we drove away. And I remember waving to friends as we were leaving and them saying, see you in three months. <laughs> um, and that car did make it out to California. We also had a goldfish with us. I remember, um, I think I had to drive 30 miles an hour through the Rocky Mountains and fill up the car with oil every time I filled it up with gas, but she made it out to California and we, we didn't know anyone in LA. Um, so we lived in a hotel in Glendale for about a week and then got an apartment in Venice. Um, there's a building on Pacific and Rose that has an orange door, a yellow door, a red door, a pink door. And we lived in a little studio and we were in the pink door and it was right by the beach and it was really like a dream come true. We would run down to the beach every day and say, how is everyone not down here <laughs> every day and watch the sunset and jump in the ocean. And it was just unbelievable. And I've always been a hard worker. I've worked all my life. I got my first job when I was 16 as a janitor at a nursing home. And I, you know, worked all through college. I would paint houses with my dad and my uncle in the summer on construction sites. I waitressed at local bars. I was a hostess. I worked at Bath and Body Works in the stock room for a while. I worked as a receptionist at a tanning salon. I unloaded milk trucks. When I was in college, I took pictures for sorority and fraternity parties. That was an interesting job and got paid per picture. Um, I think that was, I think I quit because a guy licked my face. And then I also worked as a clown in Chicago for kids' birthday parties. And that was another job I quit because someone licked my face. A child. Um, and when I got to LA, it was no different. I hit the ground, I hit the sidewalk and I found a job at a local restaurant that was pirate themed. I got a hostessing job at a hotel on the beach. I got a dog walking job. I got a job as a um, receptionist for a plastic surgeon. And I also watched his three-year-old daughter while I was receptionist <laughs> and I just was determined to make this happen and it did happen I I forced my way into an interview at CIA which is a talent agency I told them in the interview that I would design the toilet paper if they let me and for some reason they hired me um, I got a job at Variety Magazine I got a job at Beats by Dre. I worked for Apple. I worked for all of these companies um, as a creative and a graphic designer. And I initially, I was also auditioning for TV and movies, but 
the auditioning process at that time, this was prior to Me Too, Me Too um, terrified me. It was every single audition felt like a casting couch type of situation. So I, I, I loved acting classes, but I, I stopped auditioning and I was in a couple commercials, but not really anything from there. And from, and I really just pursued, um, graphic design and, and storytelling that way. And that little apartment in Santa Monica was after several years of living in Los Angeles and makeups and breakups and new relationships and making things work. Um, my little carve out, um, of my new life. And I had my yard and I had my dog and for what I needed, it was perfect. I think the tumultuous time was the buildup to the trial, and the, the most unexpected happened in the buildup to the trial. The, yeah, the stuff that I think we all needed a lot of help navigating and didn't have help navigating was the straight after and then leading up because by the time the trial happened you were in a pretty good place which is kind of a blessing too yes like if i had gone i was ready two weeks after it happened i remember thinking with my cast on Mm -hmm. and my hair still cut i remember thinking i was ready to go to trial Mm -hmm. and was completely naive to that it would be years later yeah that i would go to trial So like Meg and I are talking about in that clip, I think where we found the most surprises were directly after the attack, um, the process that it would take to get to any kind of conclusion or get any kind of answers um, legally. And, you know, in my mind, I thought they arrest him, they charge him. And then someone approves it, and then we go to trial, which now in retrospect feels silly, but that was kind of what we thought. Um, But in this episode, I want to go through, not in painstaking detail, but just kind of an overview of, of the steps that it took for us to get to um, ultimately the trial. So the police arrested my attacker, and I I haven't said his name up until this point, but we discuss him, and he comes up a lot in this episode. His name is Rashad Devin Harris, um, and they arrested him uh, three days after the attack at a parole meeting, and they were able to find video footage, um of him at the the metro stop. They found video footage of him from the hotel security cameras um, and were circulating images when they were searching for him. Um, Over the years, or, you know, as they were gathering evidence, um, they were measuring his his shoe footprints um, and measuring them against shoe footprints on the chair that was used to jump into the 
or to climb into my window. Um, and they took DNA evidence. There was so much blood on the scene that they took DNA samples from my bed and my bedroom, from, I think, the front door, from a lot of different places. Um, but key locations that we were both engaged with each other um, and fighting at different points throughout the encounter that night. He also had, in the backpack he had on him when he was arrested, had blood marks on his backpack, on the inside of his backpack, and then had clothing that had blood on it. I believe maybe a pair of jeans that had blood on them. Um, so all of this was being cataloged and tested and documented and put into what, what the police called discovery, which discovery is what the prosecutor, um, basically all of the evidence that the prosecutor has. And they have to share that discovery with the defense attorney, which in Rashad's case was an alternate public defender. Um, so like I said in the last episode, the process was um, of the the two lawyers getting up to speed with each other was a little bit longer because his original attorney had to recuse herself. Um, and then this new attorney towards the end of the summer had to start fresh through all of this discovery um, and get up to speed with what the case was against him. And all the while I was wondering and, and even kind of scared to wonder and um, why he attacked me because I didn't know him. I didn't recognize ever seeing him. You know, it's not like it was someone that I, you know, even a guy that I saw at the gas station or every, anything like that. I had no recognition of ever meeting him or bumping into him. So I kind of settled my mind with that it was just someone walking down the sidewalk and saw a light on. Although I don't know why you'd break into an apartment that had a light on. Um, because of the twinkle lights in my apartment that were on. But I almost, that was the one thing that I was too scared to think about. Uh, but then when I got the call about the letter that had been written into the DA's office from someone who knew him, I, it started to become a reality that, um, maybe he's been connected to me in some way for a very long time. But so the lawyers would get together, the prosecutor and the, the defense attorney um, would get together in what they called a prelim setting, which was basically them discussing the evidence or discovery um, and once they got up to speed on all of the evidence discussing the case and the trial and um, 
sentencing and and charges and negotiating, um, basically, just between the two lawyers. So I think what we didn't realize was that that, with the caseload that all of these prosecutors and defense attorneys and alternate public defenders, like how many people they have, how many cases they have, um, that this process takes quite a long time. Um, so, and quite a few meetings. So I'm, I'm looking at, um, the criminal case summary for this case. And it looks like starting on March 1st, 2018, which was the arraignment, um, the two lawyers met, it looks like once or maybe once or twice a month. And we would get updates from the detective. The detective would stay in contact with me and my mom and was so incredibly helpful in keeping us, educating us about this process and helping us understand what was happening even as we were getting frustrated just from being confused and not really knowing, you know, how long am I supposed to stay kind of out of the public eye? How how long am I supposed to kind of stay in the shadows? How long am I supposed to be quiet? How long am I not supposed to be photographed? Um, you know, how long until we know what's going to happen to him? You know, like, it was such a question. What, you know, am I going to have to move and change my name? Uh, you know, I had no idea what what the expected sentence would be even if he we did go to trial and he got convicted um so you know really me me and my mom were just kind of living in suspension for a while while these preliminary hearings or preliminary setting conversations were happening we had a lengthy road to get to actually going to trial with the man who did this and facing him and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking about what that was like um it was a very lengthy road we did eventually get you in a safe apartment (laughs) after you had a second surgery and so we were out there several times but we finally got you in a safe apartment that was one big worry because I didn't understand what if he what if they let him out what if they just let him out I hear sometimes people get out um I wanted you to be somewhere secure but then you know we kind of got reassured that he wasn't just going to get let out So like my mom said, he was in jail that whole time Um, when he was arraigned. uh, They set his bail to, I think, $1.1 million. Um, And he, I don't know who could post that amount of bail. Um, And he wasn't able to. But in January of 2019, so almost... January 22nd of 2019, so almost a year after 
the attack, which was on February 23rd of 2018. Um, I remember getting a call while I was at work at my new job. I'd been at that job for about a month. Um, and I remember getting a call from the detective and he said that, um, Rashad was going to have a competency evaluation and we didn't know what that meant. Um, but that, uh, I guess something happened in jail, um, not in one of the meetings with his lawyer, but he was acting erratically in, in jail and was recommended to get a psych evalu- evaluation to see if he had any kind of cognitive impairment or any kind of disorder that made it so that he was not competent um, to understand what was happening to him. And I remember calling my mom, and, and I think they explained to us that it would be 60 days that he was uh, getting evaluated. Yes, it looks like it. On March 18th, 2019, there was a, a hearing where um, the evaluator, uh, a physician, said that they found him competent. So when he was found competent in that evaluation, that 60-day evaluation in early 2019, um, I think we thought that was kind of the get up and go, and and really that just was a blip, um, and the defense and the prosecution continued to meet every month um, in a preliminary setting. Um, to discuss the case. And, and I, I know I mentioned in the last episode that there was a point where I heard something about a plea that was coming from the defense. Um, and she was proposing uh, a 14-year plea deal. And I know I went through this in the last episode, but I was scared because... That would mean he was 25 when he attacked me, and that would mean he would be, what, like, if he even served that full sentence, he'd be, like, my age now almost. He'd be in his late 30s Um, when he was let out and still sharp and able-bodied and completely capable of coming to find me and I, I, I felt like he would want to punish me or would blame me for him spending that much time in jail. So I, I was getting scared. Like I said, I I was imagining like, am I going to have to move? Is, am I going to have to worry that he's going to find me? Um, and that was when I drove down to the to the courthouse um, and talked to the DA and talked to the detective and told them what, how I had always felt, which was that I was ready and nothing would stop me um, from testifying in this case. 
you were making sure the person who tried to kill you was going to be put away for as long as possible and you're making it clear that you were strong enough to stand through a trial. You didn't feel very hurt in that. No, and I think, like me, we've gotten really close with the DA. Mm -hmm. And I think her feelings were really hurt when I said that I didn't feel hurt. And I think it really affected her. Um, And I think things changed after I said that. But that was at the point where they were talking. I don't think she was ever entertaining really a plea deal Mm -hmm. and I I think like they were erring on the side of caution to not put me through additional trauma and pain and it I think it just took a lot of me reassuring and reminding that I I whatever trauma and pain that will cause, because I think at the time I didn't think it would cause any pain and trauma to go through that. Mm -hmm. And it did. Of course. So life kept going on. Um, You know, I think I continued to recover from PTSD and the, the things that I described that I was experiencing Um, day by day and week by week and month by month and I was learning my new ecosystem and my new relationships and my new friendships and was starting to build confidence again and I started dating someone and was doing a little bit of traveling. I was really starting to feel... Um, a little bit more myself. I still had a lot, I still had a lot of work to do. I still had not gotten my anger under control. Um, I still had not gotten my drinking under control. Um, I wasn't exercising yet with regularity. Uh, and I wasn't, I wouldn't really say at that time that I was on a path of, self-discovery or or self-reflection I was really just laser focused on this trial and that really was the only thing that I woke up thinking about that I thought about throughout the day and that I went to bed thinking about and it got to be fall and we got word from the detective again in October of 2019 that Rashad had been sent to another um, psychiatric evaluation to deem his competence to stand trial. Um, So it was another 60 days that we waited, and it came back um, 60 days later. And in a hearing, a physician testified again um, that he was found competent um, again. So from there... That finally was the countdown clock to us feeling really good about the trial being just around the corner. But we got word after that competency hearing in December of 2019 um, from the DA. She called me and she said before we went to trial, we would do a series of preliminary hearings, which would be the two attorneys presenting 
their cases to a judge and I would also testify um, and the judge would deem whether or not there was sufficient evidence for a trial to commence. So I finally felt like I was ready. I was ready to see him. I was ready to stand up there. I was ready to tell my story. Um, I was scared because I knew I would get cross-examined by the defense and I knew that seeing him, you know, would change change my memory of it or the way that I felt about it but I was ready I think I wasn't so that was I think for me leading up to seeing him I was afraid I was a little bit afraid and I was really worried I I had a lot of fear around seeing having a, a real human to put into this role uh-huh. and getting to see the way he moves better and see his face better and see hear his voice better and then that night I mean and really him becoming a full human being because like you said I don't understand why someone would do this to someone and you know, over time, he just kind of became this figure in my mind. Monster. <laughs> Not a monster even, just like a force that did this thing. And then, uh-huh. and then I, you know, there was so much change and so many things to deal with and handle and, you know, process that sometimes I forgot that at the core of this was a human being which was him that Mm -hmm. did this that made this decision that made the decision to cut me that made the decision to rape me that made the decision to watch me and make this clan you know and that is scarier than a figure a force you know so when we got word that the preliminary hearings were happening in January of 2020. My mom booked a flight and flew out to be with me to testify for the first time in Los Angeles. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I'm going to cut it there. And I hope you guys are not like, God, this this gal just needs to get get it out. Um, but I, you know, I don't. Every time I go to record an episode, I I remember things that I wanted to say and things that I wanted to get in there. And and if I'm keeping you guys from your lives, and and this is. Too long of a story, I apologize. Um, but I just, I, like I said, I, I want to look back and, and tell the story like I would have told it to myself. And um, I think 
the experience seeing him for the first time and testifying and I think you can probably sense from the timing that larger forces are going to have something to do with that um I just I think it deserves its own episode um so thank you guys as always for listening and and the flashback to Wisconsin and my childhood will make um make sense in this next episode uh as kind of a framework for an aspect of of the trial that I think was really important um so thank you guys and tune in next week mm-hmm.